is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Nicholas Asher, Director of Research at the CNRS, which is the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique, and also Director of Research at the Institut de Recherche en Informatique de Toulouse, which is a um, computer science research institute in Toulouse and a former longtime professor of both philosophy and linguistics at the University of Texas at Austin. And he is here to talk with us about the philosophy of language. Nicholas Asher, welcome. Thank you, Matt. So I think a pretty obvious starting question would be something like, what is the philosophy of language? What are some of the questions that philosophers of language concern themselves with? Right. Well, as in any subdiscipline of philosophy, There are a host of issues that philosophers of language are interested in. They're interested in theories of meaning. What is the meaning of an expression? How do the meaningful expressions compose to make larger uh, units of meaning? So they're interested in the meanings of everything from words, even morphemes of words, all the way up through sentences, discourses, and finally conversation. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk about all of those. Maybe to uh, explain what some of those things are, like a morpheme is uh, part of a word, like maybe the root or a prefix or a suffix. Right. Um, and composing is a term for like the process by which the meaning of a sentence is determined by the meanings of the individual words in it, or maybe in the case of morphology, the process by which the meaning of a whole word is determined by the meanings of the little parts of the word, like the prefixes and suffixes and roots. Right. I'll just give one example. I mean, not all morphology is semantically significant. Most people would say that case marking or gender marking, especially in languages like French or German, the fact that girl in German is neuter, das Mädchen, really doesn't or shouldn't reflect on the meaning of that term. But on the other hand, suffixes like ion, and that takes us from a verb like invent to a noun, invention, or other morphological suffixes like er, so from invent to inventor, or inventor in that case. These are interesting because they They take an expression like a verb, which you might think involves a relation or an event. Uh, so to invent is to do something. But when you think about what happens when you add this little ION on it, you now, one reading of this is that an invention is the thing that was invented. And an inventor is the person who did the inventing. And more generally, these morphological suffixes show us that there is a systematic way of mapping things that might be relations or higher order meanings of involving relations or properties into objects. And this is something that philosophers are interested in. So if you have something like the property of being blue, 
you have blueness, you have blue, the color, and these can also be used as nouns. And so they would seem to denote or pick out objects in the kind of ontology that is associated with our use of natural language. And I can give you just some examples about why composition is interesting. So, I mean, why can't we just look at a dictionary? Well, you know, if you look up the meaning of runs or invents to continue with our example, you see that inventing involves a process. But if I say, you know, Benjamin Franklin invented bifocals, I need to know that bifocals is what Benjamin Franklin invented and that Benjamin Franklin was the inventor. So I need some syntax, but I also need to know how these things fit together to give us the meaning of the whole sentence, which is something like a statement that tells me you know, who did the inventing, what was invented, and that it occurred in the past. And so that's the problem of composition. And there's been a lot of recent work on the meanings of words and how they compose it's always been a, a something that philosophers and linguists have been interested in since Plato, with some hiatuses all along the history of philosophy. But recently, people have become aware that the meanings of words is very contextually dependent. So there are words like bank, which are systematically ambiguous. They're called homonymous because the two senses of bank among the two senses of bank that you will see in the dictionary, there doesn't seem to be any logical relation. So if I tell you I'm going to the bank to withdraw some money, all of a sudden you know that I'm speaking of bank in the sense of financial institution. But if I say I'm going to the bank to go fishing or um, you know, I'm going to moor my boat on the bank here, you understand it in terms of a river bank. You automatically select the other sense. And how is that done? And this is actually a kind of puzzle you might say, well, it's because the predicates that apply to bank in these different sentences have different restrictions. They're looking for different kinds of arguments. And so when you have a predicate that wants a financial institution sense of bank, it automatically selects for that sense in an ambiguous word. Now, some words aren't just systematically ambiguous in a homonymous way, that is that there doesn't seem to be much of a logical relation between the different senses of the word. Some words are what you might call polysemous, and so they exhibit a logical relation between the different senses. And an example of this would be something like the word book. So when I say the book is interesting, uh, details a complicated philosophical theory, I'm talking about the book as an informational object. And when I talk about the book as a physical object, I, can, I use certain physical products, like the book is heavy, the book has a blue cover, the book is, or something like, I picked up three books from the library yesterday. And the puzzle about these kinds of words is that they seem to function quite differently in ordinary language from the way these homonymously ambiguous words like bank function. So... It's really kind of odd to say, you know, the bank is slippery from the recent rains and specializes in initial public offerings. I'm trying to capture both the financial institution sense of bank and the river sense of bank and trying to put them both together and it doesn't work very well. However, if I said, you know, the book I took home and read three books from the library this weekend, 
I have no problem in accessing both the informational sense of book and the physical sense of book. And you might say, well, a book is both physical object and an informational object at once, but this creates puzzles too, because informational objects are counted differently, we individuate them differently, an informational object can be instantiated in multiple portions of space-time, whereas physical objects can't. And so these are kinds of puzzles that have led people to think about the lexicon in a um, much more detailed way. And we have to add to that, too, the growing realization that lots and lots of senses that words acquire are due to context. I mean, it's well known in philosophical circles since the work of Kaplan that indexicals are context-sensitive, so that when I say, I'm hungry, it's different from when you say, I'm hungry, because they're different people talking. But on the other hand, there are other kinds of context sensitivity that are much harder to gauge and don't enter into the Kaplanian picture very well. So there's some celebrated examples by Jeff Nunberg. People say, I'm parked out back. What's going on there? I is still the same old indexical. It has an indexical meaning, however you want to parse that out. Maybe you want to say that in a particular context, it denotes the speaker of the utterance. But here, when I predicate and parked out back, well, I'm not talking about me literally. I'm talking about my vehicle, my car. And this is known as coercion. And many coercions are not just dependent on the predicate and the argument which are involved in the coercion, as in the previous case, but they're also dependent on other arguments. So, for example, the painters have started the windows. You at least infer that the painters have started painting or preparing the windows for painting. And then there are cases where these contextual sensitivities seem to be dependent on discourse context. So if I tell you that my wife began with the living room yesterday, moved on to the bedroom and finished up with the kitchen pretty unclear what I'm talking about. But if I say, yesterday, Julie cleaned the house. You know, she began with the living room, moved on to the uh, bedroom and finished up with the kitchen. It's perfectly clear. Or yesterday, Julie painted the house. She started with the living room and then moved to the bedroom and then finished up with the kitchen. Perfectly clear. But what's intriguing there is that there's a separate sentence in the discourse that's actually telling you what the predications in the subsequent sentences mean. And so the study of lexical meaning has then, for me, become intertwined with the study of discourse structure. And so we can't understand the meanings of individual words without a theory not only of how they compose together to make meaningful sentences, but how their meaning is influenced and influences the meaning of the discourse as a whole. Yeah, so we've been exploring a wide range of phenomena here, I think, um... So we've been looking at how uh, the different parts of words come together, how the meanings of individual words come together to give you the meaning of a whole sentence, and how the meanings of individual sentences can interact and build meanings for discourses. I mean, you might think of, uh, maybe this is easiest to visualize on the printed page, but you could think of sentences interacting with each other depending on where they are in the paragraph and meaning different things. So your example, the example you just gave... Julie cleaned the house. She started with the living room and then moved on to the basement is an excellent example of that. So we've also looked at the difference between what philosophers call ambiguity and what they call polysemy. So ambiguity is a case of a word having several different 
meanings, and it's almost like it's several different words, except the words just sound the same. Everybody's favorite example of this is the word bank, which can sometimes mean the edge of a river and can sometimes mean the financial institution where you keep your money. And then, as you just pointed out, usually it's clear what we're talking about. If I say, I withdrew my money from the bank, we all know that we don't keep money near the edge of the river. So only bank in the sense of financial institution is the sort of thing that it makes sense to say, I withdrew my money from it. But then it seems like there are these other cases which are a bit different, these polysemy cases, where... I mean, one way to think of it might be it wouldn't be worth creating a separate entry in the dictionary for these different senses of the word book because they're so similar to one another. To go back to your example, the one sense of the word book is a physical object made of paper and cardboard and leather that weighs a certain amount. And another sense of the word book is an abstract stream of textual information or something like that. And one argument that people have given for the fact that polysemy is different from ambiguity is that you can use different senses of the word book in the same breath in the way that you can't with the word bank, or at least it's a little Mm -hmm. bit strange. It's pretty hard. There does seem to be a gamut of these. So, you know, you can say things like um, Velasquez used a brush and my janitor does too. It doesn't go very well, even though we understand that there's a specification of the meaning of brush to paintbrush and also a janitor brush or, you know, the thing you use to clean floors with. There's a kind of slippery slope, but there seem to be very clear cases where we can do what we call co-predication. That is, we can predicate two different predicates with different requirements on their arguments of the same word, even when these requirements are you would think, and philosophically, incompatible in the sense that, you know, they have different individuation criteria. And there are cases where we can't. This leads actually to very deep waters. Um, Turns out it becomes hard to hold on to set theoretic uh, reconstructions of meaning that have been commonplace since Tarski's seminal work on meanings, uh, theories of meaning and theories of truth, and Montague. And the whole underlying system of types that is embedded in Montague grammar, which is due to Alonzo Church. Looking at these very simple facts gets us into deep waters because once we have a rich set of these lexical meanings that we want to give different types to, so we want to say that the informational type is different from the physical type, it becomes difficult to hold on to a set theoretic model of types. And this has led to a kind of rapprochement between what philosophers do in terms of denotations and truth conditions and much more computational theories of meaning which are oriented towards proofs. And so when you think about how theorists think of uh, the semantics of programming languages, one very popular way of thinking about the meanings of terms is as actions, as kind of proofs that take one state of the machine into another state of the machine. It's actually this view of meaning as some sort of process that underlies not only these kind of very proof-theoretic approaches to meaning, such as practiced in uh, Europe quite a bit, especially Scandinavia, due to uh, philosophers like Martin Luff, but also underlies dynamic semantics. In dynamic semantics, there is also the fundamental idea that each word's meaning is a kind of transition from one information context to another. Yeah, so there's been this move in the philosophy of language and linguistics that's sometimes referred to as the dynamic turn, 
which is a move towards thinking about meaning in a new way. A little bit more traditional way of thinking about the meaning of a sentence is it's giving you something like a picture of a way the world might be, sometimes referred to as the truth conditions of the sentence. So whatever it is that has to be the case for the sentence to be true. So if I say, Matt is in Amsterdam, then the meaning of that sentence is the truth conditions of that sentence, and the truth conditions of that sentence are that Matt be within the perimeter of Amsterdam. But this uh, new way of thinking about the meaning of a sentence is not as a picture of the way the world might be, but rather as the potential to affect a conversational context. So under this new way of thinking of the meaning of Matt is in Amsterdam, it would mean something like all the different changes that uttering Matt is in Amsterdam could affect in a conversation. When you state it that way, it's not incorrect. It sounds like it's an impossible task to try and codify. So, of course, philosophers and linguists and computer scientists have made simplifications. So I'm going to tell you a little story here, but I'm going to start first with just a very simple view of, of a way a machine works. Turing machine, so for example. A Turing machine involves a machine state. All machines involve machine states, which means that certain bits of information, or let's say zeros and ones, are in certain places in the machine's memory. And now you get an instruction, like when you take your calculator and you type in seven and then you hit the plus button and you hit four. Well, and then when you say equals, okay, so there are a few steps. So you enter some stuff. You might think of them as being entered into different parts of memory. So maybe seven is entered into one register. We won't, maybe it's better not to think of Turing machines, but to think of register machines where memory is allocated into different parts, which we'll call registers. Seven is in one, four is in another, and now you have an operation. What's the meaning of that operation plus? Well, it tells you to take the contents out of one register and add them to the other one one by one recursively and then you count the result and you see that it's 11. So the meaning of a term like plus in programming is to tell you how to affect a change on the state of the machine to go from a machine with these two numbers to get one that's longer in one register. That was sort of developing independently and philosophers, I understand you had Bob Stalnaker on this podcast, in the mid-70s, in 1976, wrote a very influential paper called Assertion. What do assertions do in a discourse context? Well, if I say, you know, I'm Nicholas Asher, and I work in philosophy of language, you can imagine that what this assertion does is it transforms the information context that you had at the beginning. You don't know anything about me, so, you know, I could be anything. I could be a plumber, I could be a mechanic, but I tell you... I'm a philosopher and I work on philosophy of language, then you've eliminated some of the possibilities. And so you have transformed the original context. This can all be done with straight truth conditional semantics for each sentence. So each sentence is true in a set of points of evaluation or what we call possible worlds. That's a way of characterizing the truth conditions. You take the context, which is also considered as a set of possible worlds, and the effect of the assertion is to just take the intersection of those two sets. Now, that's a nice picture, but we know that there are many, many more contextual effects that such a view has trouble with. So, for example, I tell you, you know, yesterday I met this really great guy. Um, he's working at ILLC on conversation, and we had a really great conversation. 
So when I tell you I met a really great guy, what I've done is I've introduced an individual into the discourse context, and the continuations of that context can ascribe more properties to him. Now, if you think about this in terms of classical logic, it becomes a nightmare because classical logic says, okay, for the first sentence, there was someone that Nicholas met. Okay, done. Now you have this pronoun, but the pronoun is supposed to pick up this guy. In classical logic, we do this by means of variables and binding, and the binding that's given by someone is closed off at the end of the first sentence. So I would have to reopen it somehow, stick the he in there, link it up to the someone. It's kind of complicated, and dynamic semantics was born in part to try and do justice to these kind of linking phenomena between pronouns and their antecedents. I mean, we know that pronouns link up to antecedents within sentences, you know, Matt likes his podcast. But they also link up in the same way across sentences, and not just to proper names, but to indefinites. And we don't want to say uh, what Locke said is that, well, yeah, a man just refers to the indefinite man. What would such an indefinite man be? No, we want to say that it introduces an existential quantifier and a bound variable, but that somehow this binding is open for subsequent discourse to pick up on. And there, now you see dynamic semantics is much closer to the computational paradigm than you might think, because then what an indefinite does, like someone or a man or a woman does, is to change and affect the information context by opening up another discourse individual that we can comment on in future conversation. So a lot of the questions that philosophers of language are interested in, these questions that we've been talking about, have a significant degree of overlap with the questions that linguists who work in the field referred to as natural language semantics are interested in. What are some of the similarities and differences between the philosophy of language and linguistic semantics? Well, philosophers of language, I, I mean, this is perhaps a character, but I think they're kind of interested in the big picture. You know? So what kind of theory of meaning in general do we want? Do we have to become dynamic semanticists or not? How does context play a role? How should it play a role? What, if any, distinction between semantics and pragmatics should we use? You know, how do these notions of computational meaning link up to denotation? You know, how do they square with the debates about externalism in the philosophy of mind? Those are very rich and interesting issues. The linguists want to say, give me a framework, like Chris Kennedy would say, give me a framework, and now let's tackle some difficult constructions. Like, so how does this stuff about co-predication or coercion work, right? Or you know, how should we analyze intentional verbs like seek or try or worship? And then I'd like to throw into the mix here, if I could, my third hat, which is, has to do with computer science. You know, many people think that, you know, the questions that philosophers ask are remote and have really no practical significance whatsoever. But as you know, now that we have the Web 2.0 or even before, we live more and more in a web-based age. And you look at what's on the web, it's text. And it's not just a little bit of text. There are gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of it. You get overcome with this. And now how are you going to troll the web intelligently? I mean, we can do keyword search, as Google does, but that has a certain limited amount of use. And computer scientists are really very interested in accounts of meaning to get their computers to search more intelligently. 
There's a very interesting interaction, I think, that's going on now. So one thing is, why should linguists and philosophers pay attention to computer science? Once you start looking at the context sensitivity of language, especially when you look at words that are sensitive to discourse context, it becomes more and more difficult to remain an armchair philosopher or an armchair linguist. It used to be the case that you could submit an abstract to the most prestigious conference in linguistics with one or two examples that you thought up in your armchair. To some extent, it's still the case, but more and more, people want attested examples from the web. And especially if you deal with phenomena that are sensitive to discourse context, the combinatorics, just you know, how many ways a discourse context can vary, there's so many that your mind gets overwhelmed. You have to do empirical research, and that's what computer science gives us. It gives us the web with partial analyses where we can do intelligent searches and make our linguistic and philosophical theories better. And there's also a giant challenge because computer scientists want techniques that are relatively robust because there's a lot of data out there to analyze and even our best syntactic parsers are accurate, not with respect to fine-grained syntactic structure, but just dependencies. So where's the subject, where's the object of a verb, and how do subordinate clauses link to the verb, and things like that. They're accurate to about 91 92%, which is astonishing. This, these are parsers that are automatic, and were trained automatically on data annotated by humans. And they do better than what we call symbolic parsers can, parsers that use rules or that are using logic. And we have a similar problem in semantics, except the problem is much more complicated, and it's even worse in discourse. In semantics, our structures are more complicated and more fragile, and we have used logic since Montague to do our analyses, and I think we should still continue using logic. But the problem is that if we just write handcrafted lexical meanings, we're never going to get very far. Our coverage will not be enough to deal with the World Wide Web. So we need ways of automating this, and there are some very interesting proposals out there. Johann Boss in Groningen has a program that translates Wall Street Journal articles into a dynamic semantics called discourse representation theory, but he can also give you first-order logic representations of these, and they're not half bad. But in general, what we have to do is kind of find a meeting point between the demands of computational efficiency and the demands of fine-grained analysis that linguistics and philosophy give us. And that's not an easy thing, especially when we start trying to build semantic parsing devices or discourse parsing devices based not on handcrafted rules, but on um, statistical uh, bases, on basis of machine learning algorithms over annotated corpora. This becomes very difficult because we want to annotate our corpora in a way that's faithful to our semantic theories. And we've worked for lifetimes on the semantic theories, and they're very delicate and detailed. And yet we can't do these annotations ourselves. We won't get enough data. So we have to farm them out to other people. And then we have to write annotation manuals. And if you write an annotation manual for Montague grammar, it's going to be very difficult for your typical first-year undergraduate to be able to do this. So we have to devise ways of annotating the data that are clever but simple. And that's something that's extremely difficult to do. i give you an example why it's so difficult with discourse structure. So in syntactic parsing, there's been 50 years of thought about what syntactic structure is like. It's relatively 
well-behaved. It has the structure of a tree. Okay, you know, people can disagree about that. Uh, you know, exactly what kinds of trees you have, but there's a lot of agreement. And the annotation process, though somewhat complicated, has now been codified. We feel pretty good about that. With discourse, we're outside the domain of trees. We're in graphs, perhaps hypergraphs, which are a yet more complicated structure. The kinds of structures we're annotating begin to look like something like gene structures or something that complicated and also open-ended. And we don't know how even to measure these annotations, the annotations of the structure. How good are these annotations? We don't know. And plus, there's a matter of subjectivity. We know that people can legitimately disagree about the structure of a discourse or what was said. Just have two people take minutes of a philosophy department meeting and you'll see sometimes they won't agree. It's a matter of interpretation. Um, and so we don't know how to deal with that, but if we're going to really deliver on this marriage between computer science, linguistics, and philosophy, which promises a holy grail at the end of it, a world wide web that you can ask a question to and it'll find you intelligently the things you're looking for, we have to meet these kinds of challenges. Sometimes I think of this on the model of unintended consequences in mathematics. Um, huh. So what started off as a problem in the 18th century for Leonhard Euler about uh, how many times you have to uh, cross a bridge uh, in walking around the city of Königsberg hundreds of years later becomes a problem about how to get computers over the World Wide Web to uh, you know, interact properly and, and so on and so forth. And there are you know, many, many examples of this. Sometimes I uh, wonder whether this might also be a useful way to think about philosophy. Maybe some ideas in philosophy can have unintended consequences so that on the one hand, you have philosophers wondering about these interesting puzzles. We've talked about what's the difference between ambiguity and polysemy. And maybe some of the stuff you were just talking about might be an example of you know, some of these considerations that started off as really interesting philosophical puzzles and now become very practical questions about how to implement certain kinds of search engines and computer algorithms. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I would say, you know, philosophers don't always just engage in useless speculations. Actually, sometimes these things come to be uh, extremely important. I mean, we can also just cite, I don't know if you want to say that Turing is a philosopher, but he was worried about the nature of computation and algorithms, and then his work gave birth to modern computers, without which you know, our society today would be unthinkable. Nicholas Asher, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Matt. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. <laughs>